Well, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to the Gospel of John. This will be our last message in, in John chapter 6. We've made it through. And uh, as you are turning there, I've recently been working through uh, a, a great book uh, entitled Confronting Christianity. Uh, it's uh, by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin, and she does a great job of kind of talking through so many objections that many people cite uh, against uh, Christianity uh, that they would cite re- regarding why they would reject the claims of of Jesus. And uh, as I read off the, these chapter titles, you, you see what she she deals with in the book. She says, are, are we better off without religion? Does Christianity crush diversity? Or how can you say that there's only one true faith? Or doesn't religion hinder morality? Or doesn't religion cause violence? Or how can you take the Bible literally? And hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? Or how could a loving God send people to hell? And those are reasons that many people would cite as to why they, they don't want to follow Christ. That they don't want to uh, read and follow what is written in Scripture. Uh, and those are, those are hard questions, are they not? Uh, and, and what we see uh, in those questions and even just, again, our experience this week, we see that life is hard. It, it's complicated. It's difficult to, to sort through at times. But what we have to, to see and understand is that Scripture, uh, that our faith gives us the best answers to those questions. Okay? And that's ultimately what... The disciples are going to conclude as well. As, as we've been studying John chapter 6, Jesus is going to, to start to address some, some hard truths. Uh, as we have seen in past weeks, he's going to say some hard things. And, and ultimately, many of his disciples, after what he has taught in this setting at a, at a synagogue in Capernaum, says many of his disciples leave him. They say, wow, this is really hard. Who can accept these truths that he has said, and, and what he has said, he, he said that he has a heavenly origin, that he is more than just a man. He has claimed uh, that the people, uh, that ultimately all of humanity, can do nothing to save themselves. He has claimed that he has come to give his life as a sacrifice. And he has claimed that he alone can give them spiritual and eternal life. And there's a lot of overlap between what Jesus is claiming here in John 6 with those questions that I read off that are the, the subject of that book, Confronting Christianity. Again, these are the truths that caused many of his disciples to depart from him to say, we, we can no longer follow you, Jesus. This is, this is too hard to accept. And these were ultimately, as we saw last week, these were false disciples. That they, that they followed Jesus for a time. And some of them followed him because they, they were hoping for a revolution. 
that they were hoping for uh, freedom from the, the Roman Empire who was ruling over the land of Israel at that time. Others wanted him to, to, to lead them uh, in just providing for them. Jesus said in verse 26 of chapter 6 that, that, that they followed him because they, they liked the bread that he gave them. Remember that the day before this, he had fed 20,000 people. And others of them followed him because they liked seeing the miracles that he performed. And that's what we looked at last week, these false disciples who, who followed for a time but ultimately fell away. And what we're going to look at this morning in verses 67 to 71, uh, this is going to serve as a contrast to the false disciples that we looked at last week. That as many of the disciples are, are leaving and departing from Jesus, he turns to the twelve. And he speaks to them. And this is the first time that term, the twelve, appears in John's gospel. Uh, And John, the apostle, doesn't go into any detail about who the twelve are. He doesn't identify them in his gospel. But but it's clear that at this point in time, that there is a a specific ministry that the twelve have. And they had been already chosen by Jesus to follow him. And they had been entrusted with a special authority uh, and the other gospel accounts uh, tell us uh, who these 12 men are and what they were called to do. And that they were specifically chosen by Jesus among all those who were following him to serve in a special capacity. Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 say this. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve apostles are these. And apostles just means sent out one. The names were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, And so uh, there's many, many disciples who are departing. And now Jesus turns to these 12 men and he speaks to them in the verses that we're going to be looking at today. Let's pick things up in verse 66, but we're going to study verses 67 to 71 this morning. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And what we're going to see this morning is that the the twelve disciples that he is speaking to, they are going to demonstrate how true disciples respond to the hard truths of Christianity. Uh, When there are uh, things that are confrontational, when there are things that are hard to accept, how should true disciples of Jesus follow him? And these hard sayings of Jesus, they were, they were hard in the first century and they are still hard in the 21st century. Things have not gotten any easier. They are just as difficult. 
And so we must ask ourselves, how do true disciples respond to uh, these difficult questions, these hard truths? How are we to respond? And what we're going to see this morning are four characteristics of true disciples, four characteristics that distinguish true disciples from false disciples. Okay, and this first characteristic we're going to see is in verse 67. We could say this, that true disciples will be tested by and remain with Jesus. As Jesus turns to them, he says, so do you want to go away as well? And so Jesus is asking that question, but also keep in mind that Jesus chose these 12. Luke chapter 5 verse 12 says that Jesus spent an entire night in prayer before he chose these 12 men. So, so there, there was a whole lot of thought and energy and prayer put into their selection. This was not a, a fluke. And so he now turns and asks them, do you want to go? And Jesus is testing them to see how they will respond. Or better yet, the, the testing isn't for him. As Vincent talked about earlier, when God asks questions, he's not asking to learn anything. He's asking for our benefit. Jesus is testing them so that they would begin to see what is taking place within them. He's using his question and this circumstance as a teaching moment. And the way this question is worded in the Greek, it expects a negative answer. So Jesus asks the question, do you want to go also? But what is he expecting them to say? No. He already knows what they are going to say. And again, this is one of the biggest distinguishing characteristics of true disciples. They stick with Jesus. That they remain with him. Even when his teaching is hard. Someone has said that a certain characteristic is stick-to-itiveness. And that is what true disciples have. They stick with Jesus. And last week we saw when false disciples are confronted with the word, when it's, hey, this is what's taking place in my life, but this is what God's word says. What do false disciples do? They, they grumble and complain, but they don't ultimately submit to the word of God. They, they grumble and complain and they walk away unchanged. Especially when sin and idolatry are revealed in their life. But, but true disciples, this is not the case. True disciples will be transformed by God's word. They will be tested. We will be confronted. But ultimately, if we are true disciples, we will remain with Christ. We will submit our lives to his lordship. Indeed, if we, we must realize that if we are true disciples, it, it doesn't mean that we will never be tested. Okay, that would be nice, but indeed, just the opposite. If, if we are true disciples, we will be tested all the more. Okay? Now, think about Luke chapter 21. Okay, Jesus, uh, just before he is uh, arrested and betrayed, or I think it's actually Luke 22, sorry. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says this to Simon Peter, again, the leader of the, the twelve. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so what we might have expected, since Jesus knows everything and he knows his disciples, we might have expected Jesus uh, to say, you know what? 
Peter? Uh, Satan asked to sift you, to, to test you, and I said no, because I already know what's in your heart. I, I don't need to, to find that out. But that's not what Jesus allowed. He allowed Peter to be tested. And again, because uh, Peter initially failed, yet he still stuck with Jesus after that. Uh, All of the the 12 who were chosen failed Jesus on that night. Because what did they all do as soon as he was arrested? They, They scattered. I don't know him. They all failed Jesus in that moment, but then they... They were brought back to him. And ultimately, especially in the life of Peter, this is going to be a big lesson in his process of discipleship. That he is going to learn and grow through his failures. And we are all going to have similar tests in our own lives. Tests of our faith. Okay? And again, the tests will reveal the contents of our heart. These tests, again, are not for for Jesus. They are for us. God tests us so that he might lay open the contents of our heart, so that we might see who and what we are worshiping and why we are worshiping it. Think back to the story of, of Abraham in Genesis. When, he, when Abraham was 75 years old, he was called by God to say, hey, leave your land and, and go to the land of Canaan. I'm going to give that land to you. And God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. But 25 years later, and Abraham's are 100 years old, the, the, the first beginning of that promise are beginning to happen. Because for 24 years, there was, there was no child through his wife, Sarah. 24 years is a long time to wait. God has promised, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then there's no descendant w- through his wife. And then... Sarah finally gives birth to a son, a son named Isaac. Then Genesis 22 comes along. And and so Abraham waited 25 years for this son who was promised to him. And then uh, Genesis 22, uh, Isaac is not just a a little child. He's a young man. He's a youth. And God says this to Abraham in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is God testing a true disciple. Uh, the, The example of faith in the Old Testament is Abraham. So Paul turns to in Romans chapter 4. So Abraham is willing to obey the Lord. And ultimately, Genesis 22 shows us that, that Abraham was willing to obey. That Abraham was willing to, to worship God and to give up that which was most deeply treasured by him as an act of worship. And you think Abraham loved his son, his only son that he had waited for and hoped for for so many years? But God is not asking you and I to sacrifice our our firstborn on a literal altar. But he does test us in many other ways. Okay? Will we honor Christ or will we fear men? Will we obey his word or will we reject it? Will we lay aside our own desires so that we might love God and our neighbor? 
Will we speak harshly to others on social media? Will Christ govern our entertainment choices? Will we sacrifice personal time to spend in the Word and in prayer? Ultimately, will we leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord? Some of us might be willing to boldly stand for Christ uh, in our workplace, but then we struggle to love our family at home. And for others, it might be the opposite. Some of us might be really uh, faithful in loving our, our families and shepherding them, but then we, we get cold feet when it comes to sharing about Christ in the workplace. And many of us say, yes, I will, I will serve Christ, but we often have an, a misunderstanding of what that looks like, of what He is calling us to. Oftentimes we, we think that, that Christ is asking us, okay, go get $10,000 out of your bank account in large bills, take that money and then give it all to me at once. You say, yes, I'm, I'm willing to do that, if we had $10,000, right? Uh, and we often think that that's what Christ is calling us to do, but it's really more like this. He says, okay, go and get $10,000 out of the bank, but get it in pennies. Okay, And rather than giving it to me all at once, I, I want you to, on a, on a regular daily basis, you're going to make sacrifices for me, and you're going to put in a penny. That, that is more of what it looks like to follow Christ on a day-in and day-out basis. Not just being ready to, to die for Him, but to be ready to live for Him. To constantly set aside our own desires, our own prerogatives. To deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. And each offering of a, of a penny... Is that sacrifice on our part, a denial of ourselves, a confession of sin, an offer of forgiveness, an act of service when it's inconvenient. All of these things, these are, these are the small things that the Lord is calling us to do, but we often struggle to do them, right? And those are the little things that Christ is calling us to do, the small tests of our faith. And each one is a response to a hard truth. It's a hard truth because obedience is difficult. How do, how do I submit myself to that? Those little things. But again, that is what Christ is calling us to. And true disciples, they will be tested. And yet they will remain. They will abide and they will continue to follow Christ. It's the first distinguishing mark we see here in John 6. The, the second one is in verse 68. That true disciples believe Jesus alone offers eternal life. Look with me at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And, and Peter is the, the unofficial leader of the twelve and the official loudmouth of the twelve. Uh, he, he is always the, the first one to respond to Jesus. He always has a, a quick answer. But he answers the question with a question. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who else can we turn to? And Peter's logic is very simple. Those who were departing from Jesus were also turning to someone else. Right? That change of directions means that you are, in turning from one thing, you are going to turn to another. And Peter's just saying, who else is there to turn to? So, so Jesus, if I turn from you, who else is there? No one else even compares. No, no one else has the words of eternal life. 
You have the words of eternal life, is what Peter said. And again, these words mark the conclusion that every true disciple of Christ should, should come to. This is the conclusion that we need to embrace, that Jesus alone offers eternal life, that he has living words, that his words speak about eternal life, and they convey eternal life. And true disciples are convinced that Jesus alone offers hope, that he alone offers salvation. There is an understanding that hope can be found nowhere else. Uh, This same Peter is going to say this in Acts chapter 4. Verse 12, speaking to a crowd, he says, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who else are you going to turn to? There's no one else. In the late 1800s, there was a, uh, in the middle of the, the industrial revolution, there were several major industries that were monopolized by powerful men, right? Men you've probably heard of, uh, John Rockefeller had a near monopoly on oil. J.P. Morgan had a monopolistic control of railroads. He was a banker, but as the banker, guess who uh, all of the railroads were indebted to? (laughs) To him. So he exercised that control. Now, the De Beers group has had a long-standing monopoly on diamonds. And at the the height of the Industrial Revolution, as the uh, Americans began to see the power that these men wielded, politicians and the public began to demand for control uh, to be to be put into place to, to limit their power, because the men with with this type of power over certain monopolies or industries uh, were, were leading and guiding the country. And so uh, there were many political uh, acts put into place and those monopolies were were sought to be uh, broken up and divided up. And and again, that's our our human tendency. But there's but there's one monopoly that will never be broken up. There's, There's one monopoly that can never be torn asunder. And that is the monopoly that Jesus Christ has on salvation. And there's nothing we can do to to change that. He is the only one who has the power and the authority to save us. He is the only one who has the words of eternal life. And every true disciple is going to come to that conclusion. They're not going to look anywhere else. They're not going to look to themselves and their own works. They're not going to to look to any other system. They're going to look to Jesus alone and all that he offers as eternal life. And so again, we, we have to look and examine ourselves in light of this. What conclusion have you come to about what Jesus offers his disciples? And true disciples believe that Jesus' words are eternal life. And we as individuals must be convinced of this. And if we're not convinced of this, we may not be true disciples. But we also have to understand what Jesus offers. And again, it's his words are eternal life. Jesus is not offering our best life now. He's not offering health and wealth and success in all that you do. He's not promising peace in every human relationship. And he's not promising that you will not suffer while you're here on the earth. But this is what Jesus is offering. Salvation. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, freedom from the enslaving power of sin. It's also promising suffering and persecution. 
but also contentment, strength, and peace in the middle of the suffering and hard circumstances. He's also promising perfect justice in the future. And so we have to clearly understand what it is that Jesus is offering and what his disciples are called to believe so that we can accurately proclaim this offer to others. So this is, this is where the rubber meets the road of this. Of true disciples will understand that Jesus offers eternal life and Jesus alone offers that. So how does that influence us? How does that impact us? Well, parents, you have the opportunity to disciple your children. Each and every day. And so what is it you tell them about Jesus? What do you tell them that he offers them? And which of those lists? That he, that he will make them happy and healthy and wealthy? Or that he promises persecution and suffering? But also forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. And we have to, to teach the gospel to those whom we are discipling. And we also have to be faithful to proclaim what Jesus offers to the world around us. Don't promise things that Jesus has not promised. But we must promise everything that he has said that he will give and what will come upon those who follow him. So when we speak with uh, co-workers, when we speak with neighbors and family members, and, and we speak with them about who Jesus is and what he offers... We must proclaim that he has, that his words are eternal life. This is is where the rubber meets the road, and this is what true disciples must be convinced of, and what will distinguish true disciples from false disciples. That we understand what Jesus offers, and what he alone offers is salvation and eternal life. What we see is that true disciples will be tested and they will remain with Jesus, but they will also believe that Jesus alone offers eternal life. And then thirdly, in verse 69, you see that true disciples believe Jesus is the Holy One of God. And Peter's confession of faith continues into verse 69, but the The singular turns into the plural. He begins to now speak for the other members of the twelve. He says, hey, this is what we have come to believe. We have believed and have come to know. And what this points to is the conviction that the disciples are coming to. This conclusion that they are making as they are seeing all that Jesus has been saying, all that he has been doing as leading them to a conclusion. And he says, we have come to believe, we have come to know, we have come to be convinced of the truth about Jesus. And they now hold to this truth. They understand that Jesus is more than just a mere man, that he's not just a good teacher. He is the Son of God. He he is more than just a prophet. And the the title that Peter uses for Jesus here is not one that's, that's common in the Gospels. And uh, it's used another time in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, but it's a, it's a demon saying the words. Uh, Jesus is in a synagogue, uh, and a, a man who's demon-possessed in the synagogue stands up and says, What have we to do with you, Jesus, the Holy One of God? 
So this is most certainly a, a messianic title, but it's, it's different from other confessions of faith that Peter makes. And again, on, on a recurring basis, part of the discipleship that, that Jesus uh, carries out with these 12 men uh, is constantly asking them questions, getting them to think. And on multiple occasions, he brought them to a point where they had to answer what they believed about who Jesus is. On another occasion, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Another confession of faith. And Mark records it uh, in another instance, and Peter answers Jesus and says, You are the Christ. But what's unique here is that for, for those who were familiar with the Old Testament, and John was, was written to unbelieving Jews, so, so that would have kind of sparked something in their mind, uh, that, that you are the Holy One of God. It would have drawn their mind back to a, a title of God in the Old Testament. Uh, and that title would have been that, uh, the Holy One of Israel. Yeah, that, that was a phrase that the prophet Isaiah used 25 times in his book. Over and over again, the Holy One of Israel. And, and also keep in mind that, that Jesus just quoted Isaiah 54 in, in what he was teaching. He, he quotes in, back in the, John chapter 6, verse 45. When he said, and they will all be taught by God. That is a quote from Isaiah. In Isaiah 54, verse 13. And you know what? In that exact same chapter, 54, verse 5, now there is a reference to the Holy One of Israel. This is what Isaiah 54, 5 says. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And the God of the whole earth, he is called. And so this was, this was Peter's way, I think, of affirming not only his faith uh, and the faith of the twelve disciples in Jesus, but it's also a way of saying, hey, we're tracking with you. Jesus, you quoted Isaiah, let me quote it back to you and, and use Isaiah as a frame of reference of what we have come to believe about you. And Peter's confession connects with everything that that verse says about God, that he is the, the creator, that he is uh, the Lord of hosts, that he is the redeemer, he is the God of the whole earth. Peter is saying, this is what we have come to believe about you, Jesus. Again, this is what all true disciples must come to believe. And we do not merely believe in what Jesus offers to us, but we believe who Jesus is, who it, who it is that is doing the offering. And we believe and trust in the person of Jesus because he is God. Now, and true disciples understand that, that Jesus is who they need. That's the whole point of the, this bread of life discourse that we've been studying, right? Jesus is saying he is the bread of life. What is it we need to live? Bread. And as physical bread sustains us in our earthly life, spiritual bread that Jesus provides is what we need to have spiritual life. And there are, there are many people who want some of the things that Jesus offers, some of the things that he promises. Right? We talked about that. A second distinguishing mark is that true disciples understand and believe in, that Jesus alone offers eternal life. 
But there are many who, who want things from Jesus, certain promises, but they don't want Jesus. Right? Even, even as we think of it in this way, the, the crowds that have been gathering around our country, what is it that they have wanted? Right? Yeah, they, they have said that they want justice. And again, we can look at that. What, where does that desire come from? It's remarkable how every single human being has that desire for justice. That's not something that evolved. That's the, the, the image of God in us. But everyone who, who is protesting has said they want justice. But, but here's something to think about. Who is it that brings justice? Who does that? Well, again, going back to the, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah speaks of the, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, which is Jesus. And this is what Isaiah 42, 1 says. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And then listen to this. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And Matthew cites this passage in Matthew chapter 12, speaking about Jesus' ministry. What we have to understand is that justice comes through Jesus. But of, of all those who are gathering together and, and saying, hey, we want justice, they're, they're wanting something that, that Jesus alone can provide, but what at, at the exact same time, they don't want Christ. Now, there may be some true disciples among those who are protesting, and I'm sure that there were. But many of them just want what Jesus offers, but they don't want Christ. They don't want to submit to his lordship. They don't want to entrust themselves to him. But again, true disciples are distinguished not merely by desiring what Jesus offers. When you really think about all that Jesus offers, like everybody wants that. Nobody really rejects what Jesus offers, but they reject who he is and the claims that he makes upon their life. But we, we have to, to see and understand that, that true disciples will embrace not only what Jesus offers to us, but who Jesus is. We will be convinced that he is the Holy One of God. That we will want him for all that he is, not just for all that he can provide for us. And, and we have to, to recognize that, that our hope comes from, from Believing in those two truths of what Jesus offers and who he is, what he's done on our behalf by sacrificing himself on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And then all that he is as the son of God, that is where hope comes from for individuals. And that's also where our hope is to be found as a society. We have to come to grips with that. The same gospel is going to transform hearts one at a time and then transform our society. And we have to, to see and understand that's, that's how justice is going to, to take place. As, as God works in the human heart through his word and through his spirit and transforms us. And as the gospel goes forth, it will transform society. But also, we have to realize that, that we are going to live in an imperfect world. We are going to have unjust societies 
Unjust societies have always been. There has never been a perfectly just society. And there never will be one until Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth. And that's the best form of government. A king who is righteous. But that's not what we have right now. That's why the Lord taught us to pray. Right? Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come. That's to be our prayer. That's to be our longing. And, but within all this, saying that, that we're never going to have a just society, I, I'm not saying that we are not to seek justice and to pursue it. No, we, we are called to pursue justice. We are called to, to point out deeds of darkness. Listen to these words in Ephesians chapter 5. To let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So we strive for justice. We, we address injustice. And we also understand, again, that, that a perfect society, we are looking forward to that in hope. We are not able to, to create that here by laws or, or anything else. That all of this injustice that we see should, should increase our longing for the justice that Christ will bring when he returns. All of this injustice that we see should increase our longing for Christ. And because we know that all of these things will be addressed perfectly when he returns. And, and our hope is found in Christ alone. And that is what marks and distinguishes true disciples, that we understand what he offers and we believe wholeheartedly in who he is. Jesus is who you need and Jesus is who our world needs most. That is what we have to, to come to grips with and what true disciples will be distinguished by. And then lastly, in verses 70 71 what we'll see is that true disciples understand that jesus knows their heart so even as as peter has been speaking and using the royal we of we believe these things jesus we have come to believe and have come to know that you are the holy one of god jesus makes a clarification he says well it's actually one of you among the twelve, and Jesus says that, that he is a devil. He is a slanderer. He is a, a, an accuser. And even among the twelve, there is going to be one who betrays Jesus. And Jesus knew this from the beginning. And again, think back. Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. And then said, okay, one of these twelve needs to be someone who will betray me. All of this was part of the plan of God. And Jesus is, is clarifying 
That, that he knows those who are true and those who are false. He knows those who are his and those who are not. We see an illustration of this in, in John chapter 10. And Jesus uses or makes another I am statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I know my own and, and my own know me. And any shepherd worthy of his calling knows those sheep that belong to him. And it, additionally, the, the sheep know the shepherd as well. They, they respond to the voice of their shepherd. And thinking about this uh, another way. So Jesus isn't dependent upon our proclamation of faith. Jesus isn't dependent upon what we say. But yes, I am, I'm a disciple. I'm following you. What is it that Jesus depends upon is his own perfect knowledge of the human heart. You can bluff at cards, but you can't bluff Jesus. He knows when you, when you say, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a disciple. He says, well, no. And that's what he says here about Judas Iscariot, that he is going to betray him. Jesus knows the hearts of every single person. And so we need to act accordingly and we need to pray accordingly. What's remarkable is that at the end of John's gospel, after, after all of the disciples betrayed him, after all of them scattered, and Peter himself who says, I will never deny you, Jesus says, well, you're actually denying me three times. Jesus restores Peter in John 21. He does it in a unique way of asking him three times whether or not Peter loves him. This is what John records. 21 verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus' knowledge of our hearts should be uh, a scary reality and also an encouraging truth. Right? We're not going to be able to get away with anything. That in, our, in our moments of weakness, when we fall into sin, does Jesus know how much we love him? Absolutely. And then in, in our moments of hypocrisy, when we are, we're saying one thing and willingly choosing another, for if we're putting on a front, does Jesus know our heart? Absolutely. These are, these are the truths that we need to keep in mind. These are the, the truths that distinguish true disciples from false disciples. Right? True disciples will be tested and yet remain with Jesus. True disciples will believe that Jesus alone offers eternal life. True disciples will believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And they will understand that Jesus knows their hearts. One last thing to, to keep in mind here. I know we, I know we moved through the, that last portion rather, rather quickly, speaking about Judas and how he will betray Christ. 
Have you ever wondered why God orchestrated things that way? Right? Why is it that God said, okay, that one of the twelve disciples needs to be the one who betrays Jesus? It didn't have to be that way. It could have been somebody else who betrayed Christ. A.W. Pink gives uh, six reasons in his commentary on John's Gospel as to why this, this happened. And I'll work through these really quickly. They're amazing to think about. He says that the choice of Judas furnished an opportunity for Christ to display his perfections. Right? When Jesus was dis- betrayed, how did he respond? Perfectly. In love. The choice of Judas also provided an impartial witness to the moral excellency of Christ. Because Judas, who betrayed Jesus, his own evaluation, as the guilt began to, to mount upon his soul, he says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 4, he says that he had betrayed innocent blood. Judas understood what he had done. The choice of Judas also gave an occasion to, to uncover the awfulness of sin. Of, of how greatly uh, we desire uh, things other than Christ. That a man who had, who had been walking with Jesus for three years, who had seen all the miracles, who had heard all of the teaching, and yet the, the, how greatly he was deceived by sin. And he betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Additionally, the, the presence of Judas supplies the sinner with a solemn warning. Right? That uh, just because you are following Christ and, and walking with Him for a time doesn't mean that you can't stumble significantly in that same way. Fifthly, the presence of Judas shows us that, that we may expect to find hypocrites among the followers of Jesus. Right? And, and I'm sure we, we are probably already convinced of that. Usually the, the number one reason for people not coming to church is they say, well, there's only hypocrites in the church. And so we see that even among the twelve that Jesus chose, there was one who rejected him and falsely followed him. And then lastly, the presence of Judas among the twelve affords us one more illustration of how radically different are God's thoughts and ways from ours. That God says this is the best way to put the character of Christ on display. So we need to, to remember that Jesus was intimately acquainted with injustice. Intimately acquainted. He, he suffered injustice at the hands of the Romans. Because what did Pontius Pilate ultimately say about Jesus? I, I find no offense in this man. That he, he is innocent. Judas was betrayed and suffered injustice at the hands of the Jews. He suffered injustice at the hands of his own disciples who abandoned him and then one of whom betrayed him. What is remarkable to think about is how did Christ respond to all of this injustice that he suffered? All of the injustice that he experienced. How did he respond to it? He he submitted to all of those injustices. Okay. And he, and he did that as an example. You think of also the, the apostles. How did most of the apostles die? They were martyred. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. 
that they submitted themselves to unjust governments. And so we have to to see and understand that injustice has been taking place for a long time. There's an English saying that says, in any port in a storm, kind of the idea behind that is that when things are hard, any place that provides shelter uh, is acceptable, right? Hey, if, if there is a storm raging, just get somewhere that is safe. But in these times when, when we are seeing and experiencing injustice, we have to long for and, and we have to only accept biblical justice. Okay? We can't just say, well, any solution will work. And that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to, to biblical justice. And again, this is a much bigger conversation for uh, some, some sermons in, in the future. But as we, as we try and weather this storm right now, we have, to, we have to land safely and securely in biblical justice and who Jesus is and what he offers to us and what he is now calling us to do. And now we must live and act as true disciples and respond to every situation in life as true disciples, addressing any and all injustice when we see it, but also calling for and seeking to apply biblical justice rather than a justice of our own making. That is what we must long for. Again, more and more, as we see the injustice in this world, we must long for heaven. We must long for Jesus more and more. And we must be deeply grieved by all that we see, all the sin that is so prevalent in our world. And at the same time, we must, we must have the heart to go forth and proclaim Christ, to, to give an account for the hope that is within us. So we can't just shrink back. No, we can't just isolate ourselves. So we need to, to study God's Word, to have answers, and to address all of these things biblically because we are convinced of who Jesus is and what He has done for us and all that is offered to us in Christ.